out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Bolshoi, because I recently spoke to their bass player to find out more about love, life, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. It is the one and only Nick Shan who I spoke to. And this is the interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat that gets edited out, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Nick, it's over to you. When when I was probably even before I was 10, I can't remember the years. Yeah, it probably was, actually. The first single I ever bought was Daydream Believer by the Monkees. Classic. That's a good one. I didn't know it was a classic at the time. It's just, it's just got... It's a good song and it's got a good hook. Because they didn't actually write their songs, did they? There's some other guy whose name escapes me now. He was yes. a really good songwriter. It's and I've always loved good songs. I don't care what genre it is, as long as it's a good song. It can be dance, folk, country. I don't care as long as it's a good song. That's what yes. I'm into. And um, yeah, T Rex into them big time. Yes, and, and I can. I, I like well, I can remember sort of my mum used to have Radio Two on in the kitchen, so mm-hmm. I sort of well, I, I sort of did hear a lot of that kind of soft pop, which again were good songs from Burt Backrack and people like that, and mm. you know Scylla Black, and you thought, oh yeah, oh, and there was, I love Scylla Black. She's got some great songs. And also, there was a show in the sixties called Scylla, and there was the opening track was Step Inside Love, mm. which I thought was just amazing. And then years, decades later, I found out it was written by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Mm. And I thought, oh. mm. Yeah, that's right. It's all right then. So that's why it was such a dramatic song, and and it's a classic. So um, yeah, she's got a good pair of lungs on her, where she had, or she used to. She used to, and also, you know, she knew what good songs to cover, or people did. Or well, her uh, management did, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But she so was managed by the she was managed by Brian Epstein as well, I think. Yes, she had good connections in Liverpool, which was yeah, um, yeah. which was good. Did you Scouts come? Mafia. Sorry, <laughs> go, go on, go on, go on. Yeah, actually, there was a book about the. Um, they, they got a lot of those managers from the 60s period. But then, yeah, did you did you have sort of parents who were musical at all and, and had... Um... Well, my mum had a piano, but I wouldn't call her musical. I hardly ever heard her playing it. She tried to shove me off onto piano lessons, which I regret now I didn't really follow through on. Um, and that was it, really. My daughter's very musical, and coincidentally, she's up in Norwich as well, and she goes out and does um, solo gigs. Right. I don't know if you've been aware of her doing solo gigs around the Norwich area, but uh... I think I saw a post recently, uh, and yeah. of, of, you check of, her out. I will check her out. So, did she come up here for university and then? Yeah, she's, she's still at uni. She's studying to be a doctor. Excellent. She's on, she's on a second degree now. She did some uh, biomeds degree. Uh, which they promised would get her a good job, but it didn't. So she's now on a second degree and actually got onto a doctor's thing. She's into the third or fourth year now. Right. So she's in the, uh, what's it called? The University of East Anglia. That's right, the UEA. She's yeah, so she does gigs around there and she does mm. gigs um, around London and around Kent. But I'm very proud of her because, you know, it takes a lot of balls to get up there just with an electric piano. Well, absolutely. And sing your own songs to nobody who's there to see you. But um, she's been doing it now God, a long time. She's developed now. She's got to, she's learned her stagecraft by doing the hard graft. It's got to be and done. She's got, she's got the stage personality now. 
So I'm very proud of her. Yes, this is it. God, this is going to be kind yeah. of, Do you ever get tempted to do a little duet? At- <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sometimes when I'm drunk, I make jokes about forming a band, but um, I don't know. Maybe one day it'll happen. Yes, sitting around um, the piano, chat, yeah, singing, yeah, singing. Yeah. So when did when did you sort of go from like listening to probably Top of the Pops or watching Top uh-huh, of the Pops and uh-huh. listen to Radio One to thinking, right, I'm going to buy, oh. I'm going to get an instrument and okay. oh yeah, and whereabouts did you grow up, by the way? Right, I grew up in a town called Swanley in northwest Kent. Yes, um, it's right on the boundary where the M the M20 meets the M25. So it's quite high up in northwest Kent. It's almost London, um, but it could be twenty years away from London as well, as far as fashion is concerned. Yeah. Um, and to tell you how I started out, my um, best and oldest mate who I've known all my life and still do, when he was about thirteen, there was a guy around the corner who used to make his own electric guitars, and he made obviously a six-string electric guitar for my mate. And it was a green metal flake and all that because it was around the glam area. And then I went, oh, I want a guitar too. Right. Well, I can't get an ordinary guitar because Gary's got six strings. I'll get, I know I'll get one of those bass guitar things. So he built me one. It was gold metal flake um, on the neck. You know, the dots that you normally have on the, on the neck. It yes. had hearts. Very glam. Anyway, he built me that for 20 pounds. And it took me six weeks. No, I used to get a pound a week to paper round. Yeah, nearly half a year to pay for that. Doing paper round. Yes. And that was it. And then we were in school bands together, you know, doing covers and stuff like that. Various yes. different bands. And a lot of the bands, my bedroom was on the ground floor. And we used to rehearse there and annoy all the neighbours. Yes. Actually, actually, I'm surprised the neighbours didn't throw bricks through the window. But and did you get guitar lessons, bass lessons at that? No, stage? no, 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 no. You no, just no, played no. along to a to yeah, records. Yeah. yeah, the classic actually. So when you got to 16, did you leave school at that stage? Yeah, or? yeah. I left six, left school at 16. Or everyone was saying, "Yeah, I'm going to six boom. But I got uh, an apprenticeship with what was then Post Office t- Telecommunications, which now become BT. And right. I'm supposed, they're not supposed to become a telecommunications expert but they threw yeah. me out after a year because i was turning up because i was doing the same stuff that i was doing at school you know taking time off and, da, 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 and they didn't quite like that very much yeah. so i got kicked out after a year of that various and different then, jobs um and then punk came along did that change everything oh for me yeah yeah, because before that, if you wanted a real band, you know, and you were trying to copy like Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd, you needed thousands of thousands of pounds worth of equipment. And I was never the greatest musician in the world. And you also had to be a fucking great musician as well. And then punks brought it all down to basics. You just need mm. an amp, a guitar, and the attitude, you know, the energy. And took songwriting back to basics because it was all getting oh, Genesis-ish, you know. This is true. This is true. Well, I, I had an older brother who was seven years older, and he was he was Mr. Prog Rock, so I, I loved yeah. it. I, I mean, I, thought I liked it because that was the only thing around. But when punk came along, it made me go, of course, yeah. this is this is it. And, it you know, there's a lot of T-Rex was a bit like that. Um, it just took it back to the basics. 
And that energy and that attitude, I mean, I, as I told you, I live in Swanley, and I cut my hair short and bought a straight pair of jeans because everyone was wearing flares. And I walked down the high street, and mothers with their prams were crossing the road to get out of the way of me. And it was like, my God. And all I had was short hair and a straight pair of jeans. But then as I developed the look, it got even worse. And there were only two punks in Swanley. I used to go to you know, the local discos or whatever, persuade the DJ to play the Sex Pistols, pogo around just the two of us, go outside for a cigarette and get beaten up. There you go. Yeah, and that was it. You had to suffer for your art. Yes, because I did. I had a friend who lived in Swanley and um, yeah. we used to visit and we used to sort of go down, you know, Deptford, Dartford Tunnel or Bridge and then sort of just swing a right, go around a few corners and suddenly they were where we were. And he, mm. he backed onto a nice field and then there was the M25 right next mm. to it. So it was a Ooh, kind of... I'm going to do some name dropping here. Um, when I was 18 or whatever, in a punk band called Homicide, local Swanley band, I was the only actual punk because the guitarist had long hair and I can't really remember the look of the other two, but the keyboard player was a gentleman called Mark Steele, who's Excellent. now gone on to be, you know, the international, well, I don't know the main international, but nationally famous comedian. Yes. Name dropping, name dropping. Well, absolutely. I, no, I did an interview with him last year when he was. Doing oh, really? I, yes. bet I bet he didn't mention me. <laughs> No. no, but I, I can't remember his child. What his childhood was like. I can't. Yeah, it was something I'd had to have a look. Well, he, he, he was keyboard player in a punk band called Homicide. Right there, you mm. go. But mm. I, you know, th th this is a good education. Mm. And at that stage, and I, I suppose, did you sort of get influenced because of that South London scene? There was obviously Susan the Banshees, and mm. David Bowie came from sort of South London as yeah, well. So them, yeah, did they, did that all start to filter into your consciousness at this stage? It's not necessarily South London. It was just the whole punk thing. But you had to, you know, like if you went to, when, when it, they started playing the bigger places, like um, the Lyceum or whatever, like I went to see the Clash or whatever at the Lyceum, it was, you go up there by train, but the last train would have gone back before the gig had finished. So you used to go back to Victoria Station and they used to park the trains there. So you just used to kip on the train. Right. They let you. They let you do that at that time. I can't imagine they let you do that now. And then you wake up in the morning, and the train pulls out. And one time, I remember waking up, and the train was pulling out of Hastings or Folkestone or something, and it's gone and just on its way back. But that's what you had to do in those days. You had to keep on the train overnight. And it, yes. And did it, you go? And did you start going to kind of those free festivals in Windsor and places like that, or got, you know? no? What free for punk free festivals? Well, not so those. punk. They're more hippie kind of. Oh gatherings, no 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 no! We were punks, man. It's like you kept don't, it. You yeah. didn't mix. You didn't. You didn't do the free festival movement. No, 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 no. And I probably would have got beaten up if I turned up in all my punk regalia as well. Right. Yes. So then, as, as we sort of got to sort of seventy nine, you know, mm. Thatcher gets in. Then we have the Fort War, the miners' strike, mm. Greenham mm -hmm. Common. We thought we were all going to get blown up. What happens for you during this sort of early eighties period? Well, it's just carried on. Um, then mod came around and I dabbled with mod for about a month. No, this is not me. Went back to punk. Um, then the sort of new romantics came out. Yes. And the hairstyles really, well, a lot of them were just sort of longer versions of the spiky look. So 
that evolved and I got into wearing full makeup to go out of the house. I wouldn't walk out of the house without full makeup. Right. And, you know, go down the local pub. And yet again, there'd be always one person who wanted to beat you up for that, you know, because it's not <laughs> like you're hanging out in some trendy club like the Blitz or something in town. I was going to say, did you go to the Blitz club? No, 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 no. And hang out uh, with boy. George. No, 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 no. Right. No. Did you, and did the music start to sort of filter into you? Yes, into your... yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, punk itself did. But I mean, if it wasn't for punk, you wouldn't have had all those other genres. Punk was the thing that broke the back of the dinosaur, and everything else start, started evolving out of punk, uh, like the new romantic scene, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And it's just a gradual evolvement and you know it evolved into another genre like goth and da 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 da, da. but it all came from punk originally yes absolutely yeah, so. and there was a fantastic post-punk i mean i suppose post-punk had the kind of sort of slightly more interesting sounds and bands. yeah 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 it, it got more grown up if you like yes but you had uh, to go through that ed- it was it's like an adolescent you know the naughty ch- teenager and then you grow up a little bit and you know the punk people who started playing when they were punks they sort of learned how to play and you know you don't want to play three chords for the rest of your life no and i know from talking to a few people who were in those early bands the punk period like i don't know andy blade from eater i think he was getting really bored of the audience mm. i think he looked at his audience and went mm. oh my god this isn't what punk was about you know all yeah can... and yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. was like actually i've had enough of this you know yeah. and, and so quite a few people if they didn't make that musical jump yeah. they just kind of gave up because it's like you know i don't want to be spat out anymore and have you know things thrown out well, that was the whole point it where where did spitting come from you know that probably was one person in one gig doing a spit got reported by the national press and then you get all these people who decide they want to be punks and go oh i'm supposed to spit at someone yeah it was not about that it's terrible yes uncalled for but then sort of sort of 83 time this is this is exciting the smiths appear and suddenly indie pop becomes Uh uh a little bit more of a soundtrack to our lives so Uh what was it was it were you still playing music at this stage were you playing in local bands was 83 i was in a band uh trying to think when we actually formed it we were in it for about five years when did the bolshoi start around about 85 Eighty-five. Oh my God! Sorry. Oh, hang on. I'll, I'll just take this. Are we, can you just pause it? So. Oh yeah, blimey! Yeah. Wait a minute. I'm hitting pause. Hmm. Okay. Cool. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, that that time. Yeah. So I was just saying, were you? Um, yeah. Yeah. Were you still playing in bands just before? Yes. Sort of... um, I was in. Joined a band called Praxis. P R A X I S. And the, the other boys were sort of around the Bexy, Bexy Heath area. And we were doing sort of gothy stuff. Um, and we were together, as I say, about four or five years. And we went through four guitarists. The other three of us stayed together. Um, and we got quite popular. There used to be gigs, regular gigs once. Well, we used to be at the ship in Plumstead. And quite a few bands played there, and then that's closed. And then the promoter, Gary Morgan, I think his name was, he started promoting gigs at the um, cellar bar at Thames, what was Thames Polly in Woolwich. Right. And he had some bands down there, like Skeletal Family and da-da-da-da-da. Um, 
he once had the alarm there at the big hall. I think we supported them. But anyway, we were quite popular in Woolwich. We were big in the Woolwich and Plumstead area. Um, so we, we were pulling about 300 people a night. We did a few gigs at the Marquee and the 101 Club and stuff like that. But we weren't really going anywhere. And this leads in to uh, at the end of us, we started having a support band called, go on, drum roll, the Bolshoi. Right. They were your support band. Yeah. And I think it was two or three gigs. Um, so if anyone thinks I was the actual original bass player of the Bolshoi, that's not true. Although a lot of biogs say that I was. They had another guy who came out of another local band called Aquila. I can't remember his name. Was that Graham Cox? Yes, Graham, Graham. Yeah, Graham was his name. And he had sort of fluffy, blondy hair. And I saw, I was watching the Bolshoi, and I was just blown away by songs, the attitude, the way Trevor used to sort of ad-lib, you know, most people, when they finish the song, go, thanks very much, next song's called this. If they say anything at all, Trevor would yak away for about five minutes about anything and da-da-da-da. And he was quite provocative of the audience. It's not just people-pleasing. And I just thought there's something special about this. I've got a feeling. I've got a feeling about this. This is special. Yes. So it's just sort of... It's, we tried to keep it quiet at the time because we didn't want everyone to hate us. But I basically made overtures to them saying, look, you know, hmm, maybe, you know, we should get together. And it, they were going, oh, they were quite impressed because they thought I was the most sort of forceful and arrogant one out of my band as well. So I basically left my band after four or five years and joined them. And what was it? What was it like stepping into a new a band that had already been ooh, slightly established? I, I had nine days to learn the set before the first gig that we did together, which was <laughs> a bit daunting, but I managed to get fluff it through a bit. Yes, and did but you? It, but it was and... weird. It was weird because I suppose in praxis I was a sort of main. I wasn't the singer, but I was, I suppose, the most dominant personality there they probably disagree but um where it's obviously when you join a band like with trevor and also yan and they've got very strong personalities suddenly you're not the you know the alpha male if you like yes so that was that was a culture shock for me as well which i had to learn to adjust to but yeah. Yeah. And did you and Jan, because obviously he's the drummer, mm, did mm. you click quite quickly musically? Yes, musically we did. Um, later on when we were going on sort of tours in different countries, um, I'd, I'd room with Jan at hotels and Trevor would room with Paul once he joined the band. And, you know, we were working hard for a couple of years. For a couple of years, we were doing something like 200 gigs a year which is pretty hard work. And, yes. you know, also we used to drink hard as well. We weren't choir boys. So sometimes spilt over. So, yeah, I mean, in general, I get on with the end. But there were times, you know, it got a bit physical. Yes. I'd and you were, a three, you were a three-piece at that stage, weren't yes, you? Yes, yes, we were. We were, we were. And we did um, the first sort of mini album, Giants, 
somewhere on the Welsh border, I think, in some studio. It was a converted chapel. And any keyboards on that were Trevor. Right. Um, and I don't know, it wasn't even our idea to get a keyboard player. It was our managers, I suppose, to you know, get those keyboard sounds when we were playing live. But there was no auditions. There were no, we need a keyboard player. As one time, our manager rocked up and said, this is Paul, he's your new keyboard player. Like, oh, okay. Right. Blimey. Weird. Was... It was weird. Weird, weird, weird. Who was your manager? Um, a guy called Pete McCarthy. Well, he was, it was a partnership. It was him and his partner, it was Nikki D'Souza. They were both our managers. Yes. They're, now, they're now married, but at the time they weren't. Nice. God, showbiz. Did you, yeah, because it's kind of, yeah, so you're in an indie band, but you already got a manager. That that seemed like you were, they were quite, they were going to take a big punt on, on the band mm. in sort of major players. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, that was what, I suppose, another thing that sort of impressed me that they had management at that time but uh, i just felt there was something always been quite good at telling good that like i said before you know i like songs i've seen i'd hear songs sometimes i go that's going to be huge like uh it's easy people can do it in hindsight obviously but the first time i ever heard dex's midnight runners do come on eileen but dex's midnight runners when nobody really knew who they were before that that's that song is going to fly it's not even the sort of genre I'm normally into. No. But, but I just knew, I had a feeling. And I can't remember what I was talking about now. <laughs> what I'm rambling good, on about. Good song. No, because well, I mentioned oh, good that. Song. Yeah. Yes. On, and right. having a manager, you know, for yeah. a three piece indie yeah. band who weren't even on a label at that stage. I just was quite impressed because I thought, well, you know, there must well, have that... been a lot of bands about at that stage. And um, already people were looking at you as the next big thing. Uh, well, that was his job, really, to try and get us a deal. So, yes, um, but she did. With the, and this is with was it? Oh yeah, beggars. Was it beggars banquet? Situation? Well, it's all it's all part of the same thing, you know. Situation two, four AD, beggars banquet. It's all part of the same thing. I don't know why they split it up like that. I think Giants was on situation two. I think yes, and then that was. The whole point of that, we hadn't signed the deal then. That was just a sort of one-off. Well, that and um, sub story, just one-offs. And then we'd see how we go. But the actual record deal proper was signed. Um, Friends, five-album deal. And then we moved on to Beggar's Banquet. I don't I don't know why they did that. But... Yeah, so we had like, the cult stable mates and Pete Murphy and... Gary Newman and yes, I mean, yeah, it was quite. I suppose it had a slightly gothic kind of image, didn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we like... we got lumped in with all the gothic stuff, and we did a lot of the gigs we started out with. We were gigging with all the gothy band. I don't really think. Well, maybe some of our early stuff was that gothy, but yes. um, but we we were in that crowd. That's the gigs we were doing. We were support. We supported the cult. We supported. You know, Lords of the New Church, uh, Sex oh, Gang Children. The March Violets. Yeah, yeah. Classics. And did we yours? support them or did they support us? I can't remember. Yeah, but well, be... we played with them anyway. Um, all those sort of bands. So, you know, that, those were the gigs when we started out that we were supporting. And uh, it was, we supported um, Spirit Destiny and 
that was a tour that we did supporting them. We did a tour supporting Peter Murphy in the UK, and we did prior to supporting Peter Murphy in the UK, we supported um, Love and Rockets in the US. Right. So we did a whole the... whole Bauhaus in two tours. <laughs> yes, because actually with Pete Murphy, there was um, he had a brilliant band, didn't he? The Hundred mm. Men, who I've interviewed quite a few of them, and they were just amazing musicians. Have you spoken to Paul Statham? Yes. Right. Now, Paul State, this is how incestuous it is. Paul used to live in a house with various people, one of which was the keyboard player, Paul Statham. <laughs> so that's how incestuous it is. Paul Statham. Yes. Mm. I do, I, I he's, know, he, he, he's still writing songs, isn't he? He is. I know the guitarist had also, he sort of was from a slightly different decade, but I can't even remember his name now, but they had a good sound. His his first couple of solo albums. Well, he's got a great voice, Pete Murphy. Yes, it was. He, it he, was said, I, he said I had nice eyebrows. I would, I would have, yeah, I would have felt quite chuffed. He actually, um, because I told him I, I was a fan, because I'd seen Bauhaus five times, he went, oh, do you know how to play Kick in the Eye? And I went, yeah. He went, right, well, you can come on and do the encore, kick in the eye with us, um, final gig that we do, which I think was whole university. So I'm up on stage with Peter Murphy playing kick in the eye. It was a band that I used to be a fan, and, you know, it was just blew, blew my mind away. Yes, you couldn't have made, that would have been like a Hollywood movie, wouldn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. So was your memories of the first album generally good? This is Giants, isn't it, which was yeah. almost like a... I don't know, a mini LP? Yes, that was how it was described. Um, it was, yeah. But that was all sort of our early stuff. Um, and we didn't really have a producer. We just did it ourselves with an engineer. The engineer obviously threw in a few ideas. And as you say, that was just the three of us. Um, and it was done on a budget. I think we had a week to do it. It was, yeah, it was fine. There's a couple of songs on there I really love. I still love Happy Boy. Yes. Um, well, maybe, maybe because of the bass line, I don't know. But um, it's it's a good song, again, you know, and I think it's even now it stands the test of time. And that you probably could class under the term gothic, I suppose. And then we made a video for that. But no, some people said they couldn't play it because if you see right at the end, there's a boy rolling over and he's got a gun in his hand. They said, oh, we can't show a video with a boy with a gun in his hand. So it's these sort of silly things that harm your career, you know? Yes. I've been watching some of your videos. They're, they're really excellent. There's a brilliant one on a roundabout. I can't remember, but the, the one where someone's on a sofa. and the, uh, mm. Oh, Sunday morning. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's such a good idea. It, didn't, it just made me laugh, actually. Do, do you want to know what football ground that was filmed at? The yes. One that, that was Fulham. Fulham, right. Mm. And um, the was train station was, oh, I can't remember now, one of the North London ones. Yes. Uh, and we, was somebody on a lorry just going, because it was quite high up, wasn't it? Going it, was, it was actually a crane. Okay. The three of us standing on the crane while Trevor's sitting there. But um, to be honest, we got a bit miffed about that video because it's obviously Trevor just sitting on the sofa all the time. And, occasional shots of us so we all got bored by night so we went home so, <laughs> yeah that's why you'll probably find there's more of us in the next video because words were had about that 
Yes, we're not the backing band. So no. yes, then when when you came to do the second album, you obviously mm. had Paul. This is the Paul piece. Yes, yes. Had the dynamic changed quite a lot with another member? Yes, yes, I think it had. Um, but most of the songs were written for friends pre-Paul. So he didn't have, I don't think he even had writing right, rights to some of it. Um, but yeah, of course, it's a dynamic, you know, because with three, there's so many ways that you can pull, you know, it's mathematics, isn't it? You know, yeah. Um, yeah, it changed. Paul is, he's a different character altogether. He's Leeds, he comes from Leeds, he's got this weird sense of humor. Uh, sometimes I get and sometimes I don't and he just does weird stuff and he's completely different he's off the wall right um, yeah but I ended up um, they've, they've all gone to the States now they all live in the States but Paul was the last one to go to the States and before he went to the States I was living in a flat with him and yeah I like Paul but you know, it, it was weird. You're like, you're right. The dynamic changes. You can't yeah. deny it. But this was kind of a glorious, the mid 80s, okay, mm. is a glorious period for sort of like slightly independent music. And your sound, your band are just kind of absolutely right there, aren't they? You know, we've had the Smiths, then we have all the mm. bands from Australia, mm. like mm. the go between the Triffids, then there's Yeah, Yeah, No, um, the Wolfhounds, June Bride. So, you know, and then you have. Was it uh, the chameleons, sad lovers, and giants? So you know, the Bolshoi can you know fit in really well. So did you feel when you went to record Friends, mm. that you're on on a sort of an upward trajectory at this? Time? Yes, because that was the first album, proper album with a proper budget, um, when we had a producer. Again, uh, God, I'm terrible with names. It was the guy I used to promote uh produce van morrison can't remember his name now but again pete our manager who was very heavily into van morrison this this is the guy who's going to produce you <laughs> so he produced us and the reaction to that album was from you know people that you know and whatever fans that actually talked to you was that they liked it but they thought it didn't have the edge or whatever that we had when we played live. It was a bit too polished, right? A bit too smooth. And we took that on board when we did the second album, or we tried to. Uh, if you want me to talk about the second album now, I will. Because just, the go, I just, just going to friends though, did you? Yeah, I mean, because yeah. that does have a lot of classics on it, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Some good away, songs. Yes. Sunday morning, which obviously yes. everyone's going to say, can you remember how that came about? How did yeah. that come about? Sunday morning. Um, I'll you some stories about Sunday morning. The way we create songs is different each time. You know, sometimes maybe I'll come up with a bass riff and we jam around that, or maybe Jan will come up with a drum riff or maybe Paul will come up with a keyboard line and sometimes Trevor will do the same or he'll come with what he thinks is a packaged song and he sort of did that with Sunday Morning but the original bass line that he wanted to do was it was all funky slappy stuff I was like no 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 you can't do that you've got to pull it back so I wrote the bass line obviously um, which is the one that you hear now and then there's another thing um, 
the middle eight, you know, where Trevor plays a guitar solo. Yeah. Which he was just messing around, but he's going, oh, it's a bit too dire straits, too dire straits. And I said, do you remember our plan when we started out? Our plan was to rip off bits from all the other bands like Dave Bowie, blah, 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 T-Rex, Gary Glitter even. Yes. We love um, him. Yes. Okay. Um, and well, you know, combine them into a sound of our own. And there was a certain band a few years after us that completely ripped off a band called The Beatles and did very nicely out of it. Yes. Called Oasis. Um, so I said, that was our ethos. So it doesn't matter if it sounds Dire Straits-ish. That was what we used, that's what we started out saying we were going to do. So that classic guitar solo has been played worldwide, you know, down in Brazil and Argentina and America and da da da. We stuck with. So that's how the song came about. And if you listen to, um, there was a box set came out. Beggars decided to bring out a box set, five CD box set in 2015. Yeah which is a bit hard when you've only got two and a half albums. So they've included loads of demos and live tracks and stuff like that. So if you listen to the demo, it's still got the same guitar solo on it. Even though, you know, the producer came along and producers are supposed to change things around, change arrangements, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, that was Sunday morning. And that went on. That was the song that got really popular in uh, South America. I think yes. it went to number two or something like that. Well, I'm not surprised. It is a classic song, isn't it? I mean, it's still, mm. it does still sound. And the well, same the, with, oh, sorry, with a, the, a way is, oh yeah, sorry, after you. The, the lyrics as well. I love the lyrics, you know, because it's all anti, anti-Catholic church, basically. Well, Trevor, Trevor grew up as a Catholic. I'm not. But it's all about that, you know, how we kneel down, blah, 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 blah. Good lyrics. Trevor, Trevor can write some very, very good lyrics or some appalling lyrics, but that was some of his better ones. Yes. And your opening track, Away, what was, mm. what was, how, can you remember how that sort of came about? Honestly, but I can tell you who it's written about. I think, no, oh. I, better, I better not actually. It's a bit too personal. Oh, so close. Uh, <laughs> Perhaps later. Yeah. I can't even remember when we actually started playing because it wasn't. Someone recently on YouTube put found a um, gig, very early gig, when it was just the three of us playing in Switzerland. And I, I looked at it and said, songs, I don't think there was any songs we were playing then that actually made it, or maybe one that made it onto the albums or whatever. But it was really early. We were very, very raucous, uh, very punky <coughs> in a way. Um, when did we write away? I can't remember when it how it even yeah. came about. I think it came about as, as jamming around at a rehearsal. I but, know you, yeah. I mean, it's oh, I just remembered something that I uh, saw today, which uh, you'll 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 probably get bored of and yawn. But uh, there was an article I saw um, which had ten obscure but brilliant eighties bands you should have heard. Well, and and obviously the Bolshevik are right yeah, there actually, yeah. but you probably hear this story all the time, don't well, you? Well, that's there's a Facebook page that says the best band dedicated to us called the best band that nobody's ever heard of, and I quite like that. But I've just seen Trevor's brought out a new thing with Bolshevik Brothers thing where he's written some preamble saying that he doesn't think 
that's good. But I do, you know, I, I'm not afraid to disagree with Trevor. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but, but that's uh, I. But this is more obscure bands, and when you look at the yeah, list, you'll go, oh yeah. yes, that's fair enough. Um, because... Oh no, we were obscure. We are obscure. No one's ever heard of us. But these, slowly, these days. but I think slowly you get more. Um, I don't know recognition, really, aren't you? I mean, I mean, Sunday morning's got over nine million plays on Spotify. Jesus, mm. that's mm. amazing. And, well, we, and we still get about a million streams a year. Yes, and a which... hundred thousand monthly listens. So mm. that's just on Spotify. So obviously, the band are getting picked up quite a bit, actually. Well, I'd I'd love it, love it, love it, love it if somebody did a cover of one of our songs. And made, made, a, made a hit. Well, Taylor Swift ain't going to do a cover, is she? Because she wrote some of her own stuff. But, um, or someone used some of their stuff, you know, for a film soundtrack. Yes. No. I would love it. Um, yeah. One, to get some more money, but just to get some more, you know, rec- is recognition the right word? I don't yes. know. Um, yeah. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. Uh, but, even if we'd just been a one-hit wonder, it would have been nice. You know what yeah. I mean? goo goo. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying they were great, but they the bass player was quite good. He was good, yeah. Very good, actually. Yes. But, um, yeah, then, I mean, so when that um, when Friends came out, was there mm. a sense of disappointment with the sound and the reception that you got from it? Mm, not at the time not at the time um for example we went over to the states uh to do our first ever american tour and we landed in la and we got in a cab and the radio's on and the radio's playing away on the radio (laughs) oh my god High fives. So, yeah. Thought, this is it. This is it, boys. We're on the road. We made it. We made it. No, I mean, away is away. It's again, there's if you listen to that five CD box track, there's a demo version of that, and it didn't change that much. Um it's and we even got we got plays on Radio One and Mike Reed played it on Radio One in you know, he had the morning show at the time. Unfortunately, he didn't play it enough. Yes. Uh, and, and it, I guess you were sort of falling through that little crack, weren't you? Uh, mainstream and the indie alternative John Peel show, weren't you? Yeah, well, we were, I think we were too commercial, if that's the right word, or too poppy for John, Re- uh, John Peel. He didn't like us at all. He, he never played us. No, and I, yeah, there is, you know, I mean, there were bands, yeah, some, I know there were some bands that just, he just didn't sort of, he just felt mm. like, no, we don't, I don't need to worry about them or they'll right. be fine elsewhere. They don't need my kind of attention. Well, so. I, think, I think he just didn't like us. <laughs> you know, it can't be everybody's cup of tea, can you? So, no, but then, I mean, it did, you know, I must admit the sound is fantastic. So, um, Yes. So what was your American experience like when you landed there? Did you get good audiences and um, good reception? Well, the first tour, we were on a label, um, because Beggar's Banquet, I don't know if you know what it does, it licenses you out to other record labels around the world. Yes. So in America, we were licensed out to IRS Records. Oh, Miles Copeland. Yes. Manager of the police, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. 
uh, he invited us out to a barbecue at um, Universal Studios in the back lot. So we went for that. So we're in America. We've got Miles Copeland's, we're on Miles Copeland's label. And our agent in America at the time was Ian Copeland. Right. He's the brother who does the yeah, cooking, yeah, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So all we needed was um, Stuart rock up and do some drums for us, and we've had the whole set. Uh, <laughs> so it was all good. You know, they, he was really into us. Um, crowds were small, um, you know, three, two, three hundred or whatever. And we didn't do it, you know, in a big tour bus and all that sort of stuff. We just went round. We had a little equivalent of a transit van, American equivalent, to take the gear round in. And we went round in um, what they call a station wagon. Yes. Which is just like a big estate car, really. And then we did that. It wasn't all glam or whatever, and it was hard graft and long drives. But we did six week tour of that. Um, first two weeks of which we hung out in LA, and then gradually went across the country. But it was a little bit disillusioning when, um, say, you've got to say New York, and you're doing a radio interview and the guys going hey when you guys come into la we're like we were there two weeks ago you know that sort of stuff so that's more of the promotional thing and it's a bit spinal tapish yes you know oh there's quite a few spinal tap moments where you know the dressing rooms is literally half a mile away from the stage and all that sort of stuff i can relate to that so much it's so true um yes. but it was just getting to learn you know it's not the same over here yes and it's so vast but it was everything was generally good yes because most um, bands that I, i've done interviews with they often america often breaks them that's the the moment they go we did america and then they say we came home and broke it we split it because we just we split the, split the pistols isn't it <laughs> but yes but most bands just go my god we were in this transit van with these other other members of the band we were going to mm. kill each other if we, and you know but, substance abuse and yeah, it, yeah, it does get like that you know it, you need a, a strong liver um and strong, you know, fists sometimes. It it is, it is emotional and it's draining. You know, you're sitting in a van, probably driving for 12 hours or whatever to go to the next gig. You do the gig and then because you've got the adrenaline, you'll never drink. So then you're drinking probably too much and you're there till four o'clock in the morning, whatever, and you've got to get up and do the same thing again. It's bound to be times when a lot of the time we have a ball, but other times when Oh, tempest fray. Yes, it does happen. Yeah. I would imagine. I know. Oh yeah, it does. It was. Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was. I think he was the bass player with Voice of the Beehive, and he said he oh, came yeah. to the, the point. You know, they'd been you know big and around mm. the world, mm. and he realised that it got to the point where he'd realised he'd been talking to a mirror for about ten minutes, and went, "Actually, I've completely. I've, <laughs> I, I, I have to now get off this and uh, get myself sobered up because." It's not good that um, I've just been having a long conversation with the mirror, and I didn't realise it was me. So um, yes, it made it made. He said it. You just you don't know where you are. It's it, it's surreal. I mean, when you get back to the UK the first time after six weeks, it's like landing on another planet. And when you land in America, it's a total, total, utter culture shock. It it is like landing in a different world. 
And then you could divide America up into five little mini worlds. The East Coast is completely different to the West Coast. And then Midwest, South, you know, the Southern American states, all completely different, different attitudes. And, and then you come back to the UK and it's all grey and... Mm. Yes. And, yeah. every, and everyone thought you've had an amazing time and are now millionaires. But... I can't, I can't remember if it was the first tour or the second tour. We'd done a few gigs with Doctor and the Medics, came oh, back after really... a tour, yeah. and they were number one. Like, how the fuck the hell did that happen? They were doing the same gigs as us, you know, yes. six weeks ago, and came back at their number one. Spirit in the sky. Yeah. There you go. It was fantastic. I did. Uh, I did an interview with the um, God. His I can't remember his name, but he used to DJ, didn't he? At the um, at one of those little clubs called Oh yes, that's it, Alice in Wonderland. He was he was part of that scene, wasn't he? Dandies. I don't, know, I don't know that scene at all. Where was that? That was London in the early eighties. No, don't know it. Yes. But he was kind of yeah one of the kind of main players. But yes, but uh, um, Doctor and the Medics was mm. managed by Miles as well. Was wasn't he? Were well, they? Yeah. Do that. Yeah, he, he has one of those great stories. Okay, I can't remember his name, but I should do, shouldn't I? Um, where the rest of the band have just gone and wandered off, and Miles does his kind of give me a fucking hit. I can't hear a fucking hit on this album. It's like mm. okay. We'll cover this song, okay? Mm. You know, and you know the rest. You know, mm, but mm. Um, he said it was real rock and roll showbiz moment with Miles screaming. Mm. You know, I can't hear a hit on this record. Mm. So there you go. That's that's life, isn't it? It, get, the... it gets even more incestuous as my little musical career goes on. But I'll tell you that in sort of chronological order. Yes. So you come back, and then mm -hmm. you've got the the sort of second proper album to mm -hmm. make. So. Mm -hmm. This is 87, which personally I put down as one of the great years of music because, frankly, every record, not every, but there's a lot of brilliant records released in 87, aren't there? Do, do, you, like, do you like the second album? Um, it's different, isn't it? Mm. Mm. it? It's very different. I do love TV Man. I have to say that is um, it's one that I think is brilliant. Well, I get my own little middle-late solo vocal solo on that, don't I, so... Yeah, but it's not one that I've I've kind of ripped. Right. So, so what was what was, what was the next process of the band? Right. At this day? Okay, the second album. Now, remember, I'd said that everybody said, you know, first album's good, good songs, but not quite got that energy, etc. As live, well, it wouldn't because you've got a producer polishing it up. So we said, right, we're going to produce ourselves this time because we're going to try and get the same sound or you know, similar sound to how we are live. And that was the ethos or of the second album, as I understood it. We went away to a, a residential studio in uh, either Norfolk or Suffolk, I think, Norfolk or Suffolk, anyway, up in East Anglia, and locked ourselves away there. And then this is sort of when you were asking when Paul had an influence in the songwriting I, this is just me. It's my view, my truth, you use that phrase, of the yeah. second album. To me, it's too much keyboard orientated and very little guitar. It's certainly not got a live feel to it. And we're doing stuff like spending £1,000 a day hiring in Fairlight computers. You know, the things that Frankie goes to Hollywood use. And, all that, and it's all computer. And did, 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 did. 
And I wasn't happy at the time because it wasn't what we said we were going to do. Now, some people like it, and there are some good songs on there, but it wasn't what we said we were going to do. And so I particularly at that time nearly had a sort of minor breakdown. I was, had an American girlfriend at the time. I was sort of crying down the phone to her. Going, this is not going to be the way it was supposed to do. And to me at the time, because I've always been sort of into rock. Well, you've heard I was a punk, da, 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 yes. da, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I always liked the sort of rockier edge to things. And like I say, there's some good songs there. I remember one time having an argument with Trevor about the Cracking Smile song. Sort of similar song, I suppose, to Pardon Me, slow and it gradually grows. And I said to him, look, the vocals you're doing on this are not as good as the vocals you did on the demo. The demo, the vocals you did had so much emotion. The voice was cracking and it sort of went with the song. Like, oh, I better do it again because Nick says we're going to do it again. So he did it again. And it was better, but it wasn't ever as good as the demo. And I wish I had the demo in my possession so I could prove it to people because the vocals he did on the demo were incredible, incredible vocals. And that was it. And then, then we're off on tour, touring this new album. And second or third tour we're in the states and trevor wanted to do more of that album and play less of the first album and previous stuff it's not a good thing people don't turn up to get a whole album of stuff they don't know you know it was too much it was too much of that stuff yes and um, and as i say not much guitar on it really if you listen through it and Trevor's a great guitarist, and I love guitar. And da, 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 da. That's just my opinion. Yeah. And as I say, there are some good songs, but not really what we said we were going to actually do. It sounds a bit like what Motorhead um, had with their third album, because they, they had a very good producer, then they got rid of him because they all got on a, were getting a bit drunk and stoned, or mm. speed. And then Fast Eddie produces the third album, and he doesn't like doing it and it doesn't sound that good. And mm. then they tore it and it hasn't properly come out and they want mm. to play it to the audience who don't mm. know it. Mm. And, the, and, the, and the gigs aren't going well, the band mm. are getting more fed up and then yeah. Eddie we, we, suddenly we, finds himself kind of the odd man out and it's yeah. kind of the end of the road for him. So it we, was, yeah. We, it we, like had, we, had, we had to, uh, I don't know, after a couple of weeks or whatever, we had to uh, you know, redo it and go, look, we've got to play more of the old stuff. You know, it's what people want, you know. You can't just yes. throw out all the old stuff and go, oh, this is the new stuff and you've got to lump lump it. Well, they don't lump it. Um, you know, you're playing bigger gigs on the back of the first album. That's why you're playing bigger gigs. And then you can't... If you're playing the bigger gigs, they come to hear the first album because they like it. And you can't just go, right, full speed in the second album and give them one or two. Of the old album it just doesn't work and we proved it doesn't work but at least the penny dropped with us after a week or two it might have been a wee bit longer but yes because you got a bonus track on it i'm depressed we're all going to die was that uh-huh. the sort of mood of the the session <laughs> for that stage <laughs> possibly i can't remember yeah that's some of our b-sides is just sort of jokey messing around semi-serious stuff for example um west in london town 
we were in um, Abbey Road Studios recording something. I think we've recorded Please there. We went out down the pub, got back at 11 o'clock and just picked up our instruments and said, oh, let's just do this sort of jokey country and Western song. And it was recorded live with us all drunk, trying to do a country and Western song. One or two takes, I think. And that went in the top 40 in Poland. <laughs> <laughs> and we had to go out and do a gig in Poland before the Iron Curtain had come down, playing to yeah. 4,000 people on the back of that. Oh, that's amazing. It's weird, isn't it? You were big in Krakow, which is excellent. But then, <laughs> but, but then you know, I, I mean, it's kind of interesting because at 87, um, the year, uh, not the age, um, you know, it was kind of a, a bit of a watershed moment because for me, you know, the Smiths are huge mm. during that decade, 83 to 87, you know, the Smiths there, each album seems to get better and better and stronger. They they don't veer off from from their sound, but they, it does, you know, the songs and, and the guitar playing is brilliant and the so and the rhythm section. And then they, they break up and then also, you know, Ecstasy comes along. So mm. there's a bit of a new you know, I don't know, there's a new wave of 16, 18-year-olds who are starting mm. to want their sound. So how do you, as a band, regroup to think, right, we're going to get our third album, um, which is going to be Country Life? What was what mm. was it like at sort of 87, 88 for you guys? I think the penny dropped with all of us, no matter that some people might say it never did, um, that, you know, it was... It wasn't very guitar orientated, and that's what we started out being. You know, you can't just suddenly become, become a keyboard orientated band. Um, I remember one time we went all went to Wembley to see Pink Floyd, and that just blew our minds away. The sound. I don't know if you've have you ever seen Pink Floyd live? No, I haven't. Oh that's my what... god! Because they don't move around on stage. They put all their energy into light shows and the sound. And so they go, and you might have this helicopter sound, but it'll go all the way around Wembley Stadium and round your heads and all this. And remember, this was in the 80s. Yes. It was just incredible. And how David Gilmore can get so much emotion out of playing one note on a guitar. I'm not going to do the rest of it for you. <laughs> and it just blows your mind. And it affected us all. And we were going in writing some demo strike, stroke writing phase. And we locked ourselves for a week or two in what was a converted scout hut in Croydon, 16-track recording. And um, again, that stuff is on that five-track album. And I think... Out of the stuff we wrote and recorded there, at least six, I reckon, maybe more songs are valid. Really good songs, back to basics, got the edge, the more guitar. Some of the lyrics that Trevor's got in some of those songs are the best lyrics he's ever written. And I would be proud to release that as it is now as an album. No getting a producer in, redoing it all or whatever. I think it's valid. Everyone have played it too recently. Says it's still contemporary now. It doesn't feel dated or some of it, especially some of the lyrics he's written. You know, like, uh, everything's done for you today. So we're talking about science and technology and servants of 
yeah, servants of technology. That was 30 years ago he wrote that. Right. And oh, uh, what was it? Oh, there's another great line, another song that Trevor wrote, which I really like. It's like, I wish I could communicate, but all I do is talk. That is brilliant. That is just absolutely brilliant. Yes. I so don't this know if you've is, listened to it. Have you listened to that stuff? What Country Life? Yeah. That, on that listened, five CD box stuff. So. Yeah, I've listened to bits of it. And then there's also The Voyage of Peculiarities as uh, well. Uh, that one, yeah, that's more throwaway stuff. That's more drunk and even playing around in studios, weird stuff, and the live stuff that we did at uh, Town and Country Club. Yes. But, but that um, country life thing, I, as I say, you're not going to get all of them brilliant, but I think at least six are. Do you want me to call out the ones that I've Yes, tell us. Everything all is right. done. Okay. For you. Yes, tell yeah, us. Yeah, everything is done for you today is one of them. Yeah. Oh, hang on a moment. Hang on, because my memory's going. I've got it. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Here it is. Oh. So sad. Uh, another one's World in Action. Country Life Itself. Uh, out There in the Distance. We've already Out There in the Distance. Cast Away. Um, do, 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 do. Oh, is the right one? I don't know. That's five. Okay. Um, uh, out there, just as I've said, Castaway, haven't I? Yes. Uh, so, the one on the end sounds very Arabian. Um, oh, last chance for a slow dance. I really, really like the sound that we've got there because it's got a very Arabian sound. I don't like the lyrics. Um, it's my personal truth. Yes. If I well, if we did it again, I would love him to completely scrap those lyrics and do new lyrics, but he would never do that anyway. So, mm, But that's yes. just my humble opinion. But I love the sound of it. I, I think that's the best keyboards Paul's ever done. Yes. But, that, but, then, I, but then I like Arabian-type sounding music. So, well, Yes, absolutely. Did you? What studio did you use for that particular...? Those demos, as I say, were done in the Scout Hut in Croydon. Crikey. 16-track. No producer, what, just us. And you got it. We, we, is that kind of, would you say that was your, if you were to sort of have to save a record from, from a burning building, would you? Would that be the one that you would say, yeah, just take this, take those yeah. six tracks? Oh, yeah, and maybe away. There's a few, you know, there's three or four tracks off each of the other albums that I really like. Um, obviously, away, you've got to save it, you know, Sunday morning and pardon me and... Yes. Uh, cracking smile, I like, but I would have loved it even more if Trevor had done the vocal performance he did on the demos. Hmm. So then, after you've done that, what happens mm. to the band? As you, as you... Uh, right. Okay. Right. I think there are, with every band or whatever, or even in life, there, you make a decision. It's like sliding doors moment, isn't it? And yes. your life will change one way or the other. I know. I think the first, and obviously I've had 30 years to mull over this. I think the first decision that we made that was wrong was, as I said before, we were on IRS with Miles Copeland, Ian Copeland, you know, they're influential guys. 
you know, and they were into us. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had us on their label, you know, and they were into us. Um, it came round to we had to sign a publishing deal. Miles Copeland wanted to sign us for 10 grand. And then along came Warner Chapel, the world's largest publishing company at that point, and offered us 25 grand. And us being naive band members, and we weren't rich by any matter of means. We were only earning about £100 a week off Beggar's Banquet or whatever. We saw the pound signs, and we also thought our logic was, oh, they're the world's largest publishing company, so they've got to be good. So we went with Warner Chapel. Miles obviously got pissed off with us, so we weren't on IRS Records for the second album. And Warner Chapel, now I know, all they do is just sign up people, stick it on the shelf and hope that something happens with it. They didn't push us, they didn't do anything. Not nothing at all. And that wasn't very good. And I think if we had stuck with Miles, taken the lower offer, Miles was into us, he's obviously got a load of influence, he would have done things. He's got friends, he said, oh, do this, do that, get it on a film soundtrack, blah, 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 blah. I think that was the first mistake we made, yeah. big mistake, uh, but we trundled on. And then um, obviously we had the success in Brazil where we were playing to like 10,000 people a night, or 8,000 or two nights of 4,000 people. And we were actually sort of more pop stars rather than rock stars out there because girls were screaming at us and we had to run to cars. Otherwise it was like the Beatles, you know, and, um, having a taste of that but out there like i said before we were licensed to different record companies around the world we were licensed to warner brothers major company so we're going well why are we not why is it not happening in the uk for us we've got more success in the us not great success but you know quite high in the college charts etc etc um we're number two in brazil blah 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 why is it not happening for us in the uk and we came to the conclusion that it's because we weren't on a major label. And we were advised by our advisors because we still had two albums to do of the Beggar's Banquet, but three albums to do of the Beggar's Banquet, five album deal. We were advised by our advisors that if we broke the deal with Beggar's Banquet, they would be able to get us a deal with the major label in the UK. So that's what we did. And so we didn't do the third album and we didn't get a deal with a major record label because it would have cost them four times as much to sign us because they'd have to pay, you know, break fees for beggars and all that because it mm -hmm. would to sign another band. And we tried and tried and tried for about 18 months, two years to get a major label. Couldn't get it. And that was it. You're hot for a little while. Yes. And, th and then that's it bang, you're done. So after about two years, we just called it a day, really. And we would, so, you know, we should, in glorious hindsight, again, have stuck with beggars, brought out what I would have thought was been fantastic third album, at least, as I say, six songs on it that were really good, hopefully not overproduced and polished too much. Yes. Maybe, and just carried on and done it like um, REM did it with Miles Copeland with IRS. They 
they did the five album deal with IRS, saw it out, and then went on to a major label. But hindsight's a glorious thing. Yeah. So no, that, I, that's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Um, I remember Miles saying that um, they did the contract. Yeah, so the, they wanted to stay with the IRS, and then they said, this is how much Warner wants to pay us. And he said, just go, just go and take, you know, you, you've done what you've you know, you've done everything you can. You haven't broken any promise, and um, I wish you all the best because mm. um, you've still made them rich. So there you go. Yeah, well, as a glorious hindsight, we should have stuck with beggars. Yeah, because I guess um, with the band and the sound, you would have been, you would have kind of been, kind of there for that next period of the '90s with the yeah, yeah. guitar-based kind of songwriting. You know, yeah. suddenly Top of the Pops was filled with all these people who were like. Songwriters. Well, it, well it, it, it was a different time, wasn't it, to actually sort of break through in the UK. One, you had to be, there was only one real radio station at the time, Radio One. And then, so you had all these pluggers that you had to pay that were trying to get you on the playlist at Radio One. And the major record stores were WH Smiths and Woolworths. And they wouldn't stock anything unless it was in the top 40. So, if you hadn't made the top 40, you were selling your bits of plastic in indie record shops. And somehow you had to make that leap. And the only way you can get that, make that leap is to get into the top 40. If you get in the top 40, your records are in WH Smith and blah, 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 and then you probably get an appearance on top of the pops. Yes. It's making that leap. But now it's so different, isn't it? You could just put anything out on the internet. You don't really need a record label, really. No, just bank. No. <laughs> it's it's just it's a completely different world. No, I know no one, no, anybody from that period, you know, the eighties, nineties, especially the eighties, just has no idea how it works now. Just go, how do you work? How does it work? How do young bands get? Or you know, uh, you know, everyone else had you know a record, you know, a record label of some description. But also, you know, there was the three, you know, three weekly music papers like mm. Melody Baker Sounds. Yeah, and you did, yeah. and you did have sort of various DJs that people listened to, whether it was Janice Long or Kid Jensen, yeah, you know, Tommy Vance. Yeah. Um, you know, there was that kind of yeah. You know, you would you went to those people because you knew what they were vaguely going to play. So. Mm um god knows now so well, there you go so then when you had to to quote joy division walk away what was that um yeah what was that like sort of suddenly not being in that you know in a band at that moment it's soul destroying for me you know I'd, I'd spent 10 years or whatever trying to be in various bands and make it and then it was a joy to us when we signed record label deal and you know you come off the dole and then to go back on the dole and at one point you know you're getting invites to all these clubs oh come to this club you know oh, i can't make it i'll send a cab for you come 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 you know and then you're like on the dole and nobody wants to know you yes. all these all these people that you thought were friends aren't friends it it's it, it's it kills you, but maybe it helps your personality because I'm sure we turned into a bunch of assholes in a way, you know, a bit up our own asses, a bit arrogant. 
um, makes you human again, I suppose. But no, it's horrible, horrible. I wouldn't wish it on anyone. No, I mean, most people do have that kind of really weird transition of just mm. walking around the streets thinking, God, the only thing I know is being in the band, mm. organising that, eek, sound, you know, tools, and then nothing. And, you know, some people, one or two, you know, say, oh, by the way, you've got this massive tax bill, so you're going to have to sell oh, it don't, oh, I don't know whether I should talk about that. Right. Um, <laughs> but I will give, try and talk about it in a way that might. We had at the time managers, accountants, et cetera, et cetera, supposed to be managing all that stuff. Um, and this was about three or four years after the band had split. I got this um, letter from the tax man dropped through my door saying, uh, tax demand for the Bolshoi, X amount of money. And we had been advised when we started up to form a partnership. They said that was the most tax efficient thing to do. At the time, being a partnership means that any partner is liable for the full amount. And the other three were living in the States. Uh, so, mm. yes, I've been down that road. Shit. Yes. No, there was um... so, so, yeah, I paid it all eventually, eventually, and that broke me financially because I had to take out loans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's weird that you brought that up. I wasn't going to bring that up. No. Well, no, it has happened to quite a few bands that you went. Oh, right, but did they have to pay the whole bands thing on their own? I can't quite remember, but it was quite, you know, it was quite horrendous. You know, it was like suddenly. No band, but no equipment, just nothing, mm. literally nothing. Oh, I had to, uh, gradually, I sold all my stuff off. and It's, ugh, it's, yeah. it, yeah. I, 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 it changed me forever. I mean, I'm a lot more, I like to think I'm a lot more humble now. Um, but, uh, no, not nice feeling. I did do one more band after the World Show which might to indicate how incestuous it is, Ooh. which was, have you heard of a band called The Godfathers? Yes. Right, okay. Now, they had an amazing guitarist, didn't they? He used to throw his guitar around a bit like um, the guy out of Dr. Feelgood a bit, called Chris Dolomore. He Ooh. got a band together with Vom out of Doctor and the Medics. See the incestuous bit here? Yes. And... Uh, they had a bass player at the time, and I can't remember what happened to him, but they were going to do an album. And the idea of the album was that it was going to be released on a German label called, ironically, King Size Records. And it was going to be released only in Germany. So the idea was you got a CD in your pocket that you can use as a demo to get a deal, a proper deal, well, a proper deal, um, in the UK or the US, and that was the master plan. Yes. Uh, they, for some reason, at that time, they didn't have a bass player. So in the studio, I went along and played bass for them. And again, the idea was I played bass because it was basically live tracks with maybe just one or two guitar overdubs and vocal overdubs, but pretty much um, bass, drums, guitar was all laid down live, which is not the normal way of recording, even in those days. <laughs> 
but the idea was probably that Chris would go along and re-record the bass tracks afterwards. But it didn't turn out that way. And then we had the CD in our pockets and we went and did a little tour of Germany. Um, not, you know, big places. Again, that's getting back to basics. No roadies or anything like that, just the three of us. You know, so you've got to pack up your own gear at the end of the gig, et cetera, et cetera. Take it back to basics. And right, I think it was the last gig. I was getting impatient for Bomb to leave. And a traps case, if you know what that is, one of those cases that's got all the cymbal stands, etc. So it's basically a box full of metal. And I grabbed at it and I could feel my back going. I went, and uh, I was getting bolder and bolder and bolder. By that time, I was wearing a bandana all the time because I'd bought, you know, my hairline's going back. You know how rock musicians do it. No names yes. mentioned. Um, they wear bandanas all the time these days. Um, and I was just like, oh, I'm done. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. Oh, I actually got sacked from the Brotherland and they brought in someone else because I was too tall. But uh, that was it. I was done with that. That was it. That was music, me done and dusted. But there is, the, the album is around, if you yes. want to hear it. I had no writing stake on it. It was all their songs. I just played bass on it. And I enjoyed it because it was very rocky. Um, and it was good, good. It was good. And it's, it's you can probably find it on um, eBay or whatever. It's called Nightmares and Dreams. Brotherland. Yep. On King Size Records, yes, yep. I can. I guess it's on Discogs, but um, but there's no clip. There's no YouTube clip. So anyway, I'll have I to think have that, I think there are actually. Are there? Yeah, right. but the trouble is, there's a million bands called the Bolshe uh, the Brotherland. Yes, this is. True. <laughs> yeah, I know, slightly dodgy at times, but yeah. But then, 2015 mm. was was it the case that you had this massive box set brought out mm. to the band? Mm. So mm. what what at that stage was were you know, you're the band talking to each other. Nope. And nope. saying, nope. this is nope. what we nope. should do. Weirdly enough, beggars decided to bring that out. They knew where I lived because they were paying me royalties or whatever. They didn't even send me a copy of it. I had to buy it off Amazon for $15.99. But I was pleased that they did because I thought those demos for that country life thing had got lost. And there they were again. And I remember being very proud of those demos and to hear them again. It was worth the $15.99 for me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, at least they got out there into the public arena, those songs. So I was quite pleased about that. And the fact that beggars even thought, you know, they could make some money out of it. You know, 2015, how many years? It's about 25 years after we'd finished or something like that. Yes, blimey. So you, you you played no more sort of music? At no, no. After the Brotherland, I gave up music altogether, totally disillusioned with the music industry. Uh, I was totally disillusioned with music, actually. I think I had a minor breakdown. I couldn't listen to music for three years. No music at all, anything. Um, and then I gradually got back into it. But now I listen to music in a different way. Don't dissect everything as a musician going, oh, the drums are this, the bass, bass lines this, but I listen to music as a whole, I can do, and appreciate it the way that, you know, 
what's the best expression? Non-musicians do. Yes. They just, listen to music as a whole. They don't go, oh, the drums are this, the bass lines that, the guitars are that, the, 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 the mix is wrong, etc., etc. They just listen to a piece of music and as, as a song. And yes. I started to appreciate music that way. Mm. And then your daughter started playing music. Mm, mm. And did you yeah. think, oh, Jesus, don't do that? That's yeah, just... I did. Yeah, absolutely. And I still do because, you know, as I say, she's trying training as a doctor. She obviously would like to make it big in music thing. You know, she's done some stuff on radio and blah, blah, blah. And as I say, doing the gigs, etc. She would obviously like to make it as a pop star, rock star, whatever you want to call it. And I would go, even if you do make it, which the odds are against you, the odds are also against you maintaining that. I know so many people that have made it, uh, for example, like Jesus Jones or whatever, who used to be a fan of the Bolshoi, ironically, yes. you know, big in America. But what happened to them? It just disappeared. Um, yeah. Well, most but bands have most bands if they do have, have a, a shelf a, life. Yeah. Have a five year moment and yeah. and they can't come out with that next album and their fans have slightly moved on because they mm, yeah. get their lives and it's a bit like that that album that they bring out and mm. that tour is suddenly like where is everyone? Um, mm. Actually, they're kind of not here anymore. So it's kind of weird. It's like if you can come back in five or ten years time. That might be a good idea, but at the moment, no mm. one because there's that kind of wave of sick new wave comes. This is my theory. Well, yes, yeah. yes, but you know, there's also the bands that carry on forever and ever and ever. You know, the Rolling Stones, for example, are a prime example. You know, they yes. carry on. Um, Pink Floyd, even. Um, and you too, radio Radiohead. You too. Now, I'm. I love you too for a lot of reasons, not necessarily all because of their music some of which I like and some of it I don't. But at least they experiment. You know, they have the U2 sound, but they play around and they try different things. And also they are a real band. And there are very, very few real bands around. And what I mean by that is they all started together. They haven't had one lineup change. And as far as I'm aware, they divide the money up equally. Yes, this is true. And and you tell me another band that's done that. Very hard, very hard. I think I, think. I hate to say it. I think James did as well for for right. their right, but but they're not mm, quite in the same league. But I mm. think they also sort of did that thing of just going, we'll just not have this conversation. We'll just divide it amongst ourselves. Mm. But no, mm. but I don't think there is anybody else. I think it was. I think. Oh, Coldplay might be doing that. I think REM sure. are the other band who did yeah. that. I think they just said four four members, four you know ways. Yeah, but yeah. I might be wrong, but yeah, but even they had a few lineup changes, didn't they? I think. Oh, I think the I bass think... player. Yeah, wasn't yeah. But yeah, generally, I think yeah. also with you too, because you know, again, you know, I thought they were okay and not you know not that bothered. But what I do appreciate is that they kept going. You yeah. Know, they. they and you just think you four guys must have had moments where you just thought I could kill each other. Well, the other, and... the other, the other band that was big at the same time as them and playing Wembley Stadium at the same time was Simple Minds. Yes, I was going to say Simple Minds. And, and then again, it's, it's incestuous. I won't tell you why or how I got to meet him because that's a bit personal. But a very good friend of mine is Mel Gaynor, the drummer, well, one of the drummers. In my opinion, the best and the main drummer, Simple Minds, Mel Gaynor. And, you know, 
Simple Minds were doing Wembley Stadium same time as you two. Simple Minds are still going, but they're doing like, you know, the summer festivals and stuff like that. You two are still going and they're still playing Wembley Stadium. Yes. But Simple Minds have so many lineup changes and this and that and the other. It's just basically Jim Kerr and the guitarist, really. Um, and Mel joined them back a few years ago, so I went to see them a few times. But then they have a they have a female drummer now, don't they? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And Echo and the Bunnymen have tried, but um, this was chugging along, aren't they? But, but um, I, th I think the point I'm trying to make is just... that Simple Minds didn't have that ethos of being a real band. You know, a lot of their early songs were written by the bass player. Whatever reason he went, um, but and the money's not divvied up equally, etc. It's not just about money, but it's being a band, a true band, a real band, not just a bunch of musicians standing on the stage or recording an album, but a real band. You go through the highs, the lows, the laughs, the fights, everything. Yeah, no, it's absolutely. I, I sort of have huge respect for those people who mm. kept it going because they also looked at the big picture and thought, A, the solo work is going to be rubbish and no one will buy it. B, mm. I, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to get a job, you know, a proper, a proper job with a line well, manager. A, a lot of bands, the main man does get his head turned, doesn't need to go solo. And I say he could be a woman. And yes. some of them have success, some of them don't. But... I mean, Trevor, for example, he's done various things. Uh, the band he did after the Bolshoi, when he formed a new band called Kite, had um, a drummer. Remember I mentioned Praxis right at yes. the beginning? Had the drummer from Praxis, and he got um, Jasper from then Jericho on bass, who's a very good bass player, very good bass player. And... It, and they had uh, management, same management who were managing um, the Stranglers at the time. So they had management. They did a demo album. But I went to see them in the studio sometimes, saw some of the gigs. It's just, you can get a group of people together. It doesn't make it a band. You don't, and you don't also have to be the greatest bass player, drummer, guitarist, or whatever. It's how it's the four people gel, the chemistry, etc., get their own sound. It just didn't work. And, you know, Trevor hasn't done anything bigger than the Bolshoi in his career. And he's had another 30 years to do it. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking of the clash actually with um, Paul Simeon and um, yeah. that band. I mean, that land, especially with Topper. I mean, they were amazing. But we yeah. once that all sort of went, yeah, you wouldn't want to hear. You know, was it cut the cut the crap the last album? Anyway, well, I, I don't know. It was, no, no. It, was yeah. one that, it wasn't one that no one no one wants to listen to really. No, I love the Clash, especially the early stuff. Oh. Yes. That was it, really. So, if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen-year-old, sixteen-year-old uh, self who was uh, starting out, um, just a few bullet points. Is there anything in particular you might have just said? Oh, yes, I would would have done that or do this. Yeah, or, I'd say take the publishing deal with Miles Copeland. Yes, and um, don't break your record deal with Beggars Banquet is what I would say. 
and be true to yourselves. You know, if we say we're going to go in to do an album that sounds that's more live, don't get carried away with all the technology and whatever. But, you know, some people like that album. It's not my favourite, I must admit. But this yeah. is my this is my truth, as Prince Harry would say. This is true. Yeah. Mm. And and you know, sometimes you have to get those things out of the way. I know. Mm. Mm. I remember when Big Country, I think one of their second or third albums, they suddenly, you know, the production was like, wow, you mm. you've gone over the board, over the top. You well, could strip back for the next album, I guess. But the um, bands I like that do have an incredible production, like people like Tears for Fears, the production on that is just incredible. But it sounds great, but that's Tears for Fears. We are not like that. Or we could we could have probably got like that. But it wasn't what we were or what we said we were going to do at the time. And as I say, country life, the way it's recorded there, is it's just my humble opinion, is more like we, sh we were and more true to us and stripping it back, but some great songs. And that's, I thought, I think if we brought that out, that would have got us back on track maybe but not overproduced please yes. or maybe no producer <laughs> and, and no no fair like computers over yeah this is true well i'll have a I'll, I'll have a check those those songs you've recommended mm. actually and also i'll, I'll um Yes, I'll have to sort of um, find out when your daughter's playing any gigs in Norwich because that'll be very exciting. Well, I've got your email now, so oh yes, um, I'll, I'll email you whenever she's doing them. She goes in fits and spurts doing gigs. Oh. Sometimes she does them, you know, three or four in a month, and then she might not do any for six months. Yeah, it's been when she has an assignment. Mm -hmm. but yes there you go but look then Nick, thank you ever mm. so much for this. I'm, I'm, you know, it's been amazing, and um, yes. You know, all the best for the the year ahead. It's mm, always interesting. I'll, I'll probably upset a few people, but hey ho, it's life. Actually, you haven't said anything libelous, anyway, so that's good. Mm. So, um, yes, yeah, but there's. No, I don't think there was anything. Trust me, there was nothing. Well, <laughs> thank thank you for you know still liking what we did all those years ago, and I love it that people are still into it. I love that you can go on Facebook and see people in Southeast Asia doing cover versions of our stuff. Um, I'll get worried when one of them does it better than us, but uh, it's just that makes me proud seeing other people doing covers of their songs. Yeah, around the world, we never even went to Asia. I know. <laughs> it's just that makes me proud, and but people still appreciate it after all this time. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I amazed, I'm amazed you never went to Japan actually, because the uh, no, it was probably on our agenda. We did have some sort of red floppy single released in japan and i came out as a plastic top in a packet of cornflakes in argentina but then argentina think about this we played there five years after the falklands yes and i'm not i'm not sure but i think we were either the first or one of the first english bands to play there we played in Poland, when the Iron Curtain was still up, three months later, the Iron Curtain came down. So I think what they should do is get us to play in all these conflict zones because we were a band of peace. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, I've been watching videos of the live, of, you know, you live, and mm. brilliant. 
Brilliant. It's a shame, shame the quality's not so good, but some yeah. nice clips. I mean, really nice, you know, great dynamic on stage. Mm. It was good. I mean, um, yeah, and everyone's so good looking. There you go. Well, that's very kind of you to say. Thank <laughs> you. Um, you should see us all now. Not quite the same. But... I know, but everyone looks so beautiful. Anyway, look. Yeah, anyway, look, I'll let you go to bed. But thank you ever so much, Nick. And I will yeah. send you, I'll send you the link and then you can have a listen as well if you want. No, it's cool. I'm I'm always pleased to talk about myself. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but thank you again. And um, look, I'll, I'll check out all these other tracks you mentioned. Yeah, please bands. do. Let me know what you think of them. I will, I will. And, and, be, and be brutally honest as well. You know, well, If you like them, great. If you don't, you know, tell me. Well, actually, I'm, I have been, not just with you know your band, but um, a lot of bands, I've just been amazed with the... Um, the the quality it's just but then back in the 80s god without starting off again if you mm. if you read something that you went oh i'd love to listen to that you weren't always able to go and listen to the damn thing without buying it for exactly my people. exactly my point you and, had to trundle down to the you know indie yes. shop and buy hope it they, and hope they had a copy yeah and then take a punt for four pound but now you can go on the internet and you don't have to buy the whole album you can just stream a track you don't even have to buy it you know, yeah. but we had to, we, we, yeah, it was, it was a whole gig, you know, a whole gig. So there were, there's lots of little bands, not little bands, but bands who had that five years, three albums. Mm. And you thought, oh, actually I miss them. But then you listen to them now and you think, oh, they're amazing. I wish, mm. I wish now I'd went to more gigs when I was younger, which was kind of at the time I thought we went to lots, but now I think, no, I should have gone to more because they were right. just so much, but then, I suppose you don't know at the time that um, what it, yeah, I don't know. You just don't know at the time, do you? But yet now you look back and think, God, I wish I'd seen that band. I wish I'd seen that mm, band. Mm. Not worried about it so much, but, you know. But did, uh, you know, before our, well, even when our band was going, you know, I used to go and see a lot of other people at the time, but I used to get them for free then as well. So it was nice. Um, yeah, you see a load of bands. I know, and and when you look at the posters, it's like three bands or two ninety, two fifty, and you went, "Oh my god!" <laughs> much, yeah. You know, because now we just go, "Oh, well, yeah, it's, fright, of, it's frightening, isn't it?" It's like thirty-five quid. It's like yeah. I'm not that bothered, and I wouldn't yeah. mind, but thirty-five quid for a band. I can't make out because everyone says, "Oh, they make money on touring." Well, we certainly didn't make money on touring. We used to lose money on touring, yes. um, and we had a bit of crappy merchandise as well. You know, t-shirts and caps and that sort of stuff. I'm just flogging that, but that didn't cover the cost at all. No, no. I think that that was more the nineties and oh years mm. touring. But then in the, I mean, for two fifty, two fifty to get in. There's never going to be a lot of money, was there? <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, some T-shirts for £5, you know. Yeah, that's changed. Anyway, look, I'll let you go mm. to bed, but thanks a lot, okay. Nick. Take okay, care. Cool. Take Keep care. Touch. Keep in I touch. Will. I will. Right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive, uh, a massive thanks to Nick for giving me the time for that. This has been the C86 Show. This has been David Eastall. If you want to contact me for some nice reason, you can on um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, just do C86 Show. Also, these have, interviews have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>